Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to go through it. We ask you to bless and anoint this time, open, open our minds to what you would have us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 24, starting at verse 13. We're going to continue the destruction of the end days. <laughs> Next chapter is a little more happy. It's the praise of God. <laughs> Verse 13, when thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as a shaking of the olive tree, as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice and shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glory ye the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. From the uttermost part of the earth you have heard songs, even glory to the righteous. But I, but said I, my leanness, my leanness, woe unto me, the treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Yea, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth, and it shall come to pass that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit, and he that comes up out of the pit, midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For the windows from on high are open and the foundation of the earth do shake. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is, is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth and they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison and after many days they shall be visited then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the lord of hosts shall reign on mount zion and in jerusalem and behold before his ancients gloriously all right so we get a picture of what's in the future and this actually is going through the millennial kingdom all the way through, you know, all the way through. So it's a great picture of the end, end days. Uh, verse 13, and when it shall come in the midst of the land, the people shall be as a shaking of an olive tree, as the gleaning grapes from the vintage, when the vintage is done. And basically he's been talking about before the first half of this, all the destruction and, and tribulation is coming. And then he says it's just going to be like when they shake the olive tree. And part of what they do is they pick the olives. And then to get all the olives, they literally will shake the tree <laughs> and bring down all the olives or the gleanings of the grapes. So they go back and just pick everything off. And he says the earth is going to be like that. God is going to pick everything that's usable off the earth. And, we, and I would say this is a picture of the rapture when he takes his church and his people and the end times when he takes everybody that's been righteous through the tribulation period. But God says, I'm going to take everybody. The church will be the harvest, and then the gleanings will be those who make it through the tribulation period, which will be very few, and it will be very painful to make it through the tribulation because you will not take the mark of the beast. You won't be able to buy or sell or eat. Uh, you will, your life will be short. And God says that's what the, this is in store for them. And then he says, they shall lift up their voices, they shall sing for the majesty of the Lord, they shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore, glory you the Lord in the fires, even in the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. And this one really strikes me because I've been reading a lot of stories about 
the Christians that are being persecuted. And it's kind of interesting when you read their stories. We would think, at least in our mind, you know, these guys are being quiet. They're not talking about God. They're not sharing God because, of, because they're going to face death. It's quite the opposite. We in America hardly talk about God, and we don't face death in the, in the persecuted lands. They're talking about God all the time. And they're open about it. And, you know, it's kind of an amazing thing. Is, and you see this picture. All this trial and tribulation is going on, and they're shouting praises to God. And I just find that amazing. And at the same time, I kind of wonder, because I've actually talked to people who have said, we don't understand why America and Europe and all these places don't suffer for Christ. And they're actually, I was told, in behind the Iron Curtain back in its day, in the bamboo curtain, they were praying for the Western church to suffer. Because they, go, because they look at us and say, you guys have such a weak Christianity. And we do. We oftentimes have a very weak Christianity. We tend to not trust God for our life and for our possessions, partially because it's so easy not to trust him. You know, jobs are so good and so free in this country that people end up not really trusting God for their needs. Our medical system until recently has been so good <laughs> that we never had to really trust God for healing. And this is one of the things, you look at these missionaries and they believe in healing because there was no doctor. They had to pray for healing. They had to, people had to be healed by, by prayer. They had to see God doing mighty things and yet in America and Europe, we end up having this idea that, well, we can get everything we need. We really don't need God. And we may not say it out loud, but the way we live oftentimes says, God, I don't need you. I've got a good job. I don't need you to supply my needs. I've got a good doctor down the street. I don't need to pray for, for my healing. I've got this, that, and the other thing. And I can share Christ if I want to, and I'm not going to go to prison. And not, I don't have to worry about it. And then we find out, do we really trust God? And this is something that I think persecution does for us. It really pushes us to, I need God. I need God to protect me when I'm speaking to people. I need him for everything. And many of these persecuted nations, if you become a Christian, you don't have a job, you, don't, you lose your property, and you're facing imprisonment and death all the time. And yet people get saved. And they get very bold for God. And I think it's important to us. And here we see that even in the midst of all this trial, God's saying, they're singing my praise. They're singing praise unto God. And it's interesting here. It says they will sing of the majesty, uh, for the majesty of the Lord, and they shall cry aloud from the sea. Therefore, glory you the Lord in, in the fires, <laughs> even the name of the Lord of Israel in the isle of the sea. And I really think this is talking about places other than the Middle East. They're saying, God, because you're talking about the islands of the sea, which for the Israel was everybody else, <laughs> Gentiles. He goes on, the Gentiles are going to be praising God. And when Isaiah is saying this, that's a really amazing statement. Gentiles praising God. And Jer Isaiah says it quite frequently. The Gentiles are going to praise God. They're going to worship God, which to the Jewish mind was insanity. Why would the Gentiles praise God? Because the only way you can praise God is by becoming a Jew. And that was the way they believed. If you weren't a Jew, you didn't praise God. You weren't following God. They eliminated everybody else who followed the one God. Everybody who was of Eber's line following the one God that wasn't 
of Abraham's seed, they, they're, not, they're not one of us. They're not worshiping the right God. Even though they're worshiping the one God, they're going, they're not one of us. You know, God chose us. We are special. And if you're not one of us, you can't worship God. And that literally is the way they thought. And here, Isaiah saying, hey, hey, all these people, all these people are going to worship God. All these people in the islands of the sea are going to worship God, even though it means all the trouble that they're going through, all the, all the uh, fire that they're going through, all the pain that they're going through. And this is something, in one sense, I look forward to the day when the church has to suffer a little bit. You know, because it's going to weed out a lot of the, the tares, a lot of the non, non-true followers of Christ will be weeded out because if you're going to pay with your life, you're not going to be, you know, well, you know, I think, I, I think I'm a Christian, you know, okay, you know, off with your head. Oh, no, I don't. Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, maybe I don't believe in him. <laughs> you know, and this is just it. The trials and the tribulations, and it's getting, it is starting to get worse. It, it, we're not facing death yet, but we're facing a lot of people that are coming attacking us for our Christianity, for our belief system. And it's very important that we learn to say, take a side. And this is what Joshua said when he, when he was releasing the people, choose you this day whom you will serve. Moses said that choose, choose, <laughs> choose. You know, all through the scriptures, the prophets are saying choose. Elijah on Mount Carmel said, choose you this day, God or Baal. You know, we're going to have this contest and choose who you're going to follow. Quit sitting on the fence. And especially in America, and, you know, it's already declining in Europe, but especially in America, we got a lot of people who sit on the fence. You know, they're, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Don't go to church. Don't read my Bible. Don't pray. Don't really believe in God, but I'm a Christian. Well, what part of, what, what are you doing that makes you a Christian? And... We need to have this idea that it's important to make a choice, to make a stand and say, God, I need to stand for you. And whether it costs me everything, I'm going to take a stand for you. And it's very important here, he's saying, these people are going to worship. They're they're worshiping. They're lifting God up in the fires. And then in verse 16, for from the uttermost parts of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteous. But I said, my leanness, my leanness, woe unto me. The treacherous have dealt treacherously. Yea, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. So he says, there's going to be worship and songs and glory of the righteous from everywhere. Again, he's emphasizing, it, but when we look at this, he's emphasizing Gentiles. Gentiles are going to be worshiping God. This is mind-boggling to the Jews. Now, the Jews were told all through the Pentateuch that there was one law for all people. You know, if, they, if the Gentiles wanted to come and offer sacrifices to God, they were supposed to be able to come and offer sacrifices to God. And yet, in the temple, the Jews had to raise these great big signs saying, no Gentiles on pain of death beyond this point. You were allowed in the outer court, but you couldn't go to where the worship of God happened if you were a Gentile and didn't convert to Judaism. So they didn't have just one law. Yeah, they had a law that as long as you were a Jew, you could come in and worship God. If you weren't a Jew, you weren't worshiping God. And yet all through the scriptures, we see Jews coming to, uh, non-Jews coming to God. Nineveh repents and doesn't get destroyed when Jonah preaches to it. 
Jonah's hoping they're going to get re, get destroyed because being a good Jew, they were his enemy, and you know they're not. They didn't become Jews, so yeah, they repented, but they didn't become Jews. They deserved to be destroyed, God, and you didn't destroy them. God, I knew you were kind, is what Jonah said. <laughs> I knew you were so kind and righteous that you'd forgive them if they repented. That's why I didn't want to come here in the first place. It was the enemy of the Jews, worse than, worse than just being a Gentile. They were the enemy of the Jews. They were, they were the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was persecuting the Jews, so he didn't want them, you know, they're, they're Gentiles, which was bad enough, and they're also the nation persecuting them. So he had two reasons not to like them or want them to be saved. And he even told God, God, I knew if they repented, you'd, you'd forgive them. That's why I didn't come here in the first place. And... Uh, so all of that was going on, and yet we see over and over Jews or non-Jews coming to, coming to God. Uh, we see in Egypt under Joseph, the history tells us that there was a time that they believed in one God and they were following God. It's not to the way the Jews would have normally followed, but they were following one God. And so we see all of these things where Isaiah is saying, hey, the whole world's going to worship God. We're, and what is the end? And then basically he says, but my answer is my leanness, my, uh, my waiting, my, my needs, he's saying, is, is terrible. The Jews themselves weren't worshiping God, and yet the world is worshiping God. And we see that happening today. The Jews as a whole don't worship God. Many of the Jews are even outright atheists. And yet we see the world <laughs> worshiping God and the answer from the Jews are, I'm just lean. I don't see anything. I have nothing to praise God about. And it's kind of an amazing thing because even though the, the Jewish people have been put back in their homeland, they still don't fully trust God and, and give God the glory. Uh, and it's an amazing thing. And we're going to find that this is going to be true all the way through the, to the end of the tribulation period when they see Jesus and their eyes are opened up and... They, it will, the script prophecy is that they will see him whom they have, whom they have uh, persecuted and they will say, who gave you the, your, these wounds? And he'll go, these wounds came from the house of my friends. You know, uh, in other words, you guys did it. And they will recognize him for who he is, finally. You know, just 2,000 years later, <laughs> they'll finally recognize who he is because he comes in victory and sets up Jerusalem to be the capital, which is what they've been waiting for all along. Even today, the Jews are waiting for Jerusalem to be the capital of the world and for the Messiah to come and set up the kingdom. And so that is why they will follow the Antichrist, because he'll say, let me set up Jerusalem. We'll make it, we'll make it the center, and, and he'll look like the Messiah. And they'll go, all right, we're, we're getting everything we wanted. And then they'll find out that he wasn't <laughs> well, who, they, who they thought he was. And then they'll start looking for the Messiah again. But they've gone through this pattern for millennia now looking for a Messiah to establish the kingdom and make Israel the center. And we see this atheism amongst the Jews because they're actually getting tired of waiting. They didn't have their home. They haven't seen the Messiah. Uh, they don't have a temple. So all these things are coming down on them to just push them further and further away from God and not wanting to follow him. But it's kind of funny because if you listen to them interview Jews, they'll tell you that God gave them the land, but they'll deny that there's a God. 
which is kind of a very strange thing. It's, okay, everybody, you know, everybody in my family says God gave us this land, but you know, I don't know that there's a God. And so technically they're agnostic more than, than atheist. If there is a God, he doesn't care about us that much. He gave us our land, but doesn't really care about us. And then we see that all through the scriptures. That was the attitude of most Jews, even through the scriptures. You know, they kept, we're going to follow God's rules. We're going to do things God's way. And we'll do the idols as well. You know, no big deal. We'll cover all the bases and, you know, haven't heard from God for years. So maybe he doesn't exist anyway. And we're seeing this whole process coming in. And it's interesting in our world that the further we seem to be getting away from the one God, the more we're starting to see idols coming back in, literal idols, not just things taking God's place, but literal idols starting to, to come about. And they're becoming more and more popular. People are looking. And this is why we, we hear people talk about, you know, they're people of faith. Well, every person that has ever lived has faith. It's what do they place their faith in? The... the person who's an atheist has faith that there is no God. And they put all their faith in the idea that there is no God. We have people that put faith in everything. You cannot exist without faith. Because we can never know anything 100%. It just doesn't happen. We have to put faith. Now we can learn over time to add to our faith with knowledge. And this is where I am with God. You know, Most of what I believe about God is no longer all faith because I've you know found and researched and say, okay, if I have a faith, a step of faith, I'm jumping over a little three-foot ditch. I'm not jumping over the Grand Canyon. You know, I'm not taking a blind leap. And, you know, it's funny when I talk to people who believe in evolution and believe there's no God, and you start showing them the proofs that there is a God, the proofs that, you know, that, of, of, that evolution is, is wrong, and they'll hold on to their faith in, in what they believe because they can't, just don't want to accept God. And I'm going, I'm glad you can. I don't have that much faith. I don't have enough faith to just blindly jump off of a cliff and, you know, assuming that these things are, are true. And this is what's going to happen. And it says the world is going to rejoice in God. And the, the Jews are going to be going, you know, I don't see it. I don't see, I don't know what, I don't know what these guys are all worshiping. I don't, I don't see it. And then they go, the treacherous drill treacherously, yea, they drill very treacherously. And this is because the Jews have been sold out so often that they look at everybody that does anything good for them very narrowly. Because on one hand, people will do good for them, and on the next hand, they'll try to take it away from them. And we see this going on all the time for Israel. We see them, okay, you have the right to exist, but you know, you really maybe should give some of your land up so that you can have peace. Okay, which is it? You know, the duplicity of that. You had the right to your own land. We know it's small, but now give some of it away so, that you, so, that, so these people who don't want you to be in existence anyway will have a beachhead in your own land to come and, get you, get you, come and get the rest of the land from you. And they understand that they're being dealt with treacherously. And they doubled up, so it means it's very intense. <laughs> Modern day and past. I mean, this has been their history forever. But even in this modern day, it's the same thing. But all through history, all through history, it's been this way. Give with one hand, take with the other hand. And, you know, like the American Indians used to say, you speak with a forked tongue, you know, and you, you've got a split tongue that's saying both, you know, both things. And Israel knows that's how the world deals with them. Let's give you on this side, and we're going to encourage you to, to give away on this other hand. Why does this happen? Well, 
we've talked about this. Satan tried to destroy Israel before Jesus was born because if he could stop Jesus, that would stop Jesus from being born because he had to be born of David's seed. So he kept trying to wipe out Israel before. Since then, he's trying to wipe out Israel because everything is centered on the end times around Israel. So if he can eliminate Israel, he can end and say, see God, you didn't know everything you were talking about. You, you lied in the scriptures. And either way, he would have won. He really would have won if he could have kept the Messiah from being born because then all people would have gone to hell with him. And if he could keep God's word from being true, then he proves that God doesn't know the beginning from the end and is a liar and can win. But God's not going to let him win. It's just not going to happen. He hasn't let him eliminate the people before Jesus was born, and he had many opportunities, many opportunities. And he's not going to let him get rid of Israel completely before the end days because everything is centered around them. And Satan, we've got to remember, Satan is on a leash. And this is what I say so many times. A lot of people, and I've heard people say that Satan can do whatever he wants to the lost person. No, he can't. Because if he could do what he wanted, they'd be dead. He wouldn't even give them a chance to hear the gospel. While they're lost, he'd, he'd, he'd make sure they died. He has a limit on what he can do. And I truly believe he has to ask God's permission even to harm the unsaved. Because God's wanting them to get saved. He gets more leeway with the unsaved. Oh, we could do all kinds of opening doors, you know, but he can't go in and physically touch or the person and kill them or, or strip everything away from them himself, like he did with Job. Okay? He can only do so much, and he's only going to be allowed to go so far. Now, yes, granted, he's going to be given a lot more leeway with the lost. Because God says, well, you know, they're, they're basically yours. You're the God of this world. But you can't, you know, and he still puts limits. Just as he did on Job, you can go this far and no further. And I'm sure that these, all these other people have that same kind of limit. You can go this far, but no further. You can't take their life. I, need, I want them to have the opportunity to accept or reject. Because if Satan had his way, the person would be dead as soon as they were born. Okay, they're gone. <laughs> I get him. I got another one, which would end the life, end life on earth really quick, but that's what he wants anyway. So he has limits on what he can do because God is sovereign. And he still has to say, God, I want to do this. I want to do this. And he says, you can do this or you can do this because God is looking for them to get saved and have the opportunity to get saved. So Satan is a, you know, dog on a chain, a lion on a chain, however you want to put it, you know, a toothless lion, according to the way the scripture talks about him. He's been, you know, been depowered through the cross and people look at him and think, oh, well, he's got all this power. No, <laughs> he, he is a tool used by God and he roars a lot, <laughs> tricks people, lies to people, deceives people. And we're looking here, they're, they're treated dis deceptively. Verse 17, fear and the pit and the snare are open or upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. And this is kind of interesting. Dread, the grave, and, and uh, the snares trying to capture people are all there. And fear is something that everybody experiences unless they put their full trust in God. You know, uh, in the New Testament, we're told, cast all your cares or your fears upon him, for he cares for you. And, you know, a lot of people go, well, you can't do that. Again, 
trust God. Believe God. Put your fears on him. If, you truly, if we truly believe that God meets all our needs and he's sovereign, what have I got to be afraid of? Nothing. Because nothing's coming my way unless God allows it to come my way. And it's very important for us to be able to reach out to God and say, God, I trust you. I am going to follow you. It takes really believing what you've been taught in the scriptures. Uh, we have this problem so often, and most Christians do, of not really believing what God says. God says, I care for you. Well, you know, God, sometimes it doesn't look like you care for me. You let an awful lot come my way. But God says, I care about you. I have a plan for all of this. All things work together for good. Most of us don't really truly believe that all things work together for good. Because when bad things seem to happen to us, we're going, God, see, I knew, I knew that you didn't love me enough to keep these bad things. And God's saying, it's not bad. I have a different perspective than you do. God, you know, I really don't want to give up my life. And God says, but I have a plan. Many are going to come to Christ because of your death. And this is the point that God's saying. We have a very limited viewpoint. You know, God, you know, I don't feel very loved. And God says, I love you greatly. Just believe that I love you. But God, I don't feel it. And God says, I don't care. <laughs> believe it. <laughs> Once you believe it, you'll start feeling it. <laughs> and, you know, God says, I'm going to meet all your needs. Well, you know, God, I just lost my job. I don't know how I'm going to pay all my bills. <laughs> Let me meet your needs. You know, God, I don't feel like I'm strong. I can't get through this. And God says, you've got all my strength. You know, we need to really come to the place where we believe God's word. When he says something, we need to believe it. We're his child. He loves us. He protects us. We are in Christ, who is in the Father's hands. We're protected. You know, we're loved. We're forgiven. You know, God, I just don't know. I just can't forgive myself. I know that I keep making the same mistake, and I have so much trouble forgiving. And God says, you're forgiven. You know, do I believe that or not? Do I wallow around in self-pity because I don't believe God's word, and I believe what I the facts that Satan is feeding me instead of the truth that God says, or do I accept God's tr truth and ignore the facts that Satan is giving me and live in the victory that God has put me in? And it's very important. We have a great decision to make. Is God telling me the truth and am I going to believe him? Even though everything about it seems to say something different. And it's important for us to be able to get down and just say, wow, yes, God. I just believe your word. God, you, you're a healer. You love us. You care for us. You hide us. You protect us. You're my defense. The more we believe these things, the easier life gets to be. I'm not there yet, but I'm going, yes, God, I'm seeing it. And the more you see it, the more you want to do it, but yet then the trials come along that are really big, that kind of make you think twice about it sometimes. And yet, even then, we've got to believe it. But we've had enough experience at that point to say, okay, God, you've, you've helped me in the past. I really I don't understand this one, but I'm going to trust. And this is where people in Fox's Book of Martyrs are ready to just say, God, if my life is what you require so that people can get saved, take it. Which really comes down to the question that I've heard so many times and I've been asking frequently here. What are we willing to give up for God so that somebody can get saved? You know, am I willing to give up my life? Am I willing to give up my reputation? Am I willing to give up anything? You know, where do I draw the line on what I'm willing to give for God 
if somebody will get saved. Shouldn't be anything. Unfortunately, that's very rarely the case. <laughs> Uh, because we are human, and we have to get to the place where we're willing to give up anything and everything. And some people are more willing to give up their life than they are their reputation. You know, some people, their reputation doesn't mean anything. Their, their life is, you know, each person has a difference in that spot. But what are we willing to give up for God? You know, are we willing to give up our entertainment you know, for God? Are we willing to give up anything? You know, Paul said he gave up everything. You know, he had stripes on his body. He says, I bear the marks of Christ on my body. You know, how many of us would want to be beat on a routine basis the way Paul was? You know, most of the, that would stop most people. Uh, and you look at somebody like a Richard Warmbrandt who, who bore the marks of Christ on his body and did it with joyful, joyfulness. You know, and, uh, you know, we look at this and say, God, help me be ready to give whatever you want me to give. Anything. I don't want to hold back anything and see what God will do. And it says here that, you know, the fear of the pit, and it shall come to pass that when he hears the noise, when he flees from the noise of fear, he shall fall into the pit. <laughs> if he climbs out of the pit, he'll walk into the snare. Many people have been there. God, it doesn't matter what I do. I, it's just bad. I try to hide from the bad things and I get into a worse spot. I, try, I get out of that spot and I get, I get into a trap. And God's saying, well, you know, if you were just hiding in me in the first place, you'd have been better off. Yeah. And you know, it's very interesting. It says, for the windows on high are open and the foundations of the earth do shake. And this literally means to wobble completely. Yeah, an earthquake. Yeah. You know, the, whole uh, the whole earth, earthquake. And there's a picture of an earthquake in Revelation that talks about being so bad that the mountains fall and the hills fall. That's a pretty bad earthquake. And I have a feeling about that same time that the trenches of the oceans will rise and you know, it'll be a pretty big deal. Very much like it was during the flood when it was the exact opposite, where things went up and, and down, but it was a huge earthquake and terrible time to be in that boat uh, being tossed about. So what, the windows from on high are open? From heaven. Okay. God says, I'm opening up and, the, and everything's going to, you know, because uh, he talked about the windows of heaven dropping the rain and everything. This won't be rain because God's promised never to destroy, but the storms will come and it's representing storms. Whether physical reality storms or spiritual storms, it's going to be a bad time. And if we think about this being the tribulation period, it'll be a bad time. Um, we've talked about in the tribulation, 66% of the population dies in seven years. That's a lot of death. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to see a huge, huge issue there. And then verse 19, the earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean, dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage and transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise. This is very poetic language, but he says it's utterly broken down or cast down the earth. Uh, and again, during that end times, everything falls apart. The economy falls apart. 
life is falling apart, sickness is everywhere. At one point, people are going to get so sick they should die, and, they, and God doesn't let them die, and they wish they were dead. Uh, we see the, the earth having all kinds of troubles with earthquakes and, and terrible storms like have never been seen, it describes them as. And here we see that same type of picture. It's utterly broken down. The clean, and clean dissolved, or utterly dissolved. <laughs> Everything's been taken and moved around. And this is something that is very interesting, and it says, and it is moved exceedingly, greatly shaken. Earthquakes is what it de definitely, definitely talks about. And Revelation talks about earthquakes, big earthquakes. And this could be because as things reach its end, our earth is slowing down. It's, it's slowing down with every passing year, and we know that it's slowing down. Its axis is starting to wobble. It's almost like God 6,000 years ago spun the earth as a big top, and it's been slowing down ever since, and just as any other top is going to start wobbling when it gets to a certain place and come crashing down. And we believe that's exactly what's happening in our day and age. The axis itself is starting to shift. It used to be about every 100 years that it would shift, and we're down to about every 10 years. And when it shifts, we get big earthquakes, big earthquakes. You know, when we get it even a little slower and it starts to really wobble, what kind of earthquakes will there be? And uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting watch to see what's, see what's going to happen. And watch what God does. God put everything in motion, and everything is slowing down and, and becoming slower and and less mobile, which is exactly what the laws of thermodynamics say. Everything goes toward inertia or deadness, which is one of the reasons we know that the Earth, the world is not millions and millions of years old, because it would be dead. You know, it just it would be dead completely. Um, and it says the Earth is broken down. The Earth is unclean. It's, the earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage or shook like a cottage in the storm. This is a pretty visual <laughs> picture. Uh, you know, I've never seen a real drunk you know, walking, but I've seen the portrayals of them, and I know it's not too far off, you know, kind of zigzagging, falling down on their face, uh, you know, can't find the key to the door, can't find the key to the car, which is, should be a good thing, even though they eventually do. <laughs> this picture is the earth just wobbling back and forth, right, you know, ready to fall. And this is the picture, and it's like a cottage in the middle of a storm. And most of those cottages, when they were built out of wood or mud and stuff, didn't handle storms as well as our strong brick, cinder block and brick buildings do and stone buildings. And it goes, you can feel it. You can feel the motion. And the transgression shall be heavy, and it shall rise and not fall. People will start to understand their sin. And this is something that right now people can sin and apparently not be bothered by it, but I also understand that people are bothered by their sin even if they're not a Christian. You know, there's those times when they're laying in bed, even though they think that they're getting away with everything, they don't believe there's a God, they don't believe in judgment, and yet they feel bad about what they're doing because their conscience strikes them. And this conscience is going to be one of the worst things about hell. They're going to know that they deserve to be where they're at because of their bad things they have done. And it will all of a sudden hit them. I deserve this. 
And I think most people come to that place even during their lifetime. Somehow I deserve what I am getting. Which is why they end up with such bitterness and anger in many cases because they're just, they don't know how to get rid of it. So they strike out. And they don't know what's going on and how to get out of it. And this is what he's saying. That heaviness of their transgression is going to be so heavy on them, they're going to fall down and not be able to get back up. And this is a very sad picture that God's giving to us. And verse 21, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered up as prisoners are gathered in the, in the pit and shall be shut up in the prisons. And after many days they shall they be visited. And here is the picture of the start of the millennial kingdom. Satan is bound. The demons are bound. The rulers and people that have rejected God are bound and put away. And after, after many days, a thousand years, as we find out later on, they'll be let, let out for a period of time. The demons. And you know, this is, this is such a picture of what God's trying to prove. Man right now is saying, you know, if everything was just perfect, we'd be okay and we would do the right things. God's going to use that thousand-year millennial reign to prove to man that a perfect environment will not make them better. And he's going to release Satan at the end of that time to say, okay, let's see. You've had your, you've had your thousand years of perfection. Will you, will you follow me or will you reject me? And then we're going to find that many reject him. Enough to create a great army to come against God. Which makes no sense either, but... You know, you've walked with God, you've seen his power, and you're going to go fight God. And this shows us that the host of the high ones, those are the demons, and then the kings of this earth, all those that are ruling of this earth at that time, will all be put into judgment and will be put away into prison for, for a while, and then come back out. And it's amazing that God keeps this message going through over and over and over again. You know, he wants us to know a little bit about the future so that when it comes, it'll prove that he knew it from the beginning. You know, it's an amazing when we look at Jesus being born, all the different things that came true at that particular time. When Daniel gave his prophecy of the nations of the, the empires of the world and he got them all right. And exactly how they were going to break down and what was going to happen when they broke down. And people go, well, you know, Daniel obviously was written after, after Roman Empire. Well, that still didn't answer some of the things that were still future, but, but we also know that he didn't write before the Roman Empire. Yeah. So we look at this and we go, God, thank you. Yeah. God's word has pre predicted the future so accurately that it's the proof that it's something outside of nature, outside of time that wrote, that wrote it. And people look at, well, you know, I just don't know about it. <laughs> what don't you know about it? The proof of the word of God tells us a lot. The prophecies tell us a lot. That Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again tells us a lot. And those are our biggest proofs when we talk to people about God. The prophecies in the Bible that have come true, the prophecies that are very specific that will yet come to true, and the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, and we've talked about that many times you know, over time is the facts. Did he die? Yes, he died. You know, well, did he, did he come back from the dead? Five, 500 people said he did. How many more witnesses do you want? 
you know, and we see all these lies to try to cover it up that we're really so stupid. It's not even amazing. It's it's amazing to me that anybody ever believed them. You know, I, I love what the Sanhedrin paid the guards to say. You know, uh, tell your tell your captain that while you slept, the the disciples stole the body. I'm going. You know, that to me just makes no sense. I don't know anything that happens when I'm asleep. Uh, if my house was robbed and I didn't wake up in the middle of it, I wouldn't be able to tell you who did it. Uh, if my house collapsed, I wouldn't tell you, couldn't tell you why it collapsed. You know, I was asleep. And yet their testimony was, while we were sleeping, the disciples came. Okay, number one, why were you asleep on post? But, you know, even beyond that, while you were sleeping, how do you know that it was the disciples? None of that made sense. You know, people go, well, they went to the wrong grave. All right, so the guys that wanted to make sure that he didn't come back and were guarding, they guarded the wrong tomb? You know, they didn't know where the tomb was to be able to point out. You know, there's just so many things about this that we can go and say, yes, we know he died. Forensically, we know he died. They stuck the spear up, in his, up his, into his chest and water and blood came out. He was dead. And that's what forensic doctors will tell us. That that's a sign that he was dead. Uh, so he was dead. And yet he wasn't dead three days later. And they couldn't find the body. And I can guarantee you, they scoured the place looking for the body of Jesus. Uh, because it was a big deal. If he came back, he had done what he had said. So they would have checked every tomb. They would have checked everywhere and didn't find him. And the disciples said, we've got 500 people that have seen him. That's a lot of eyewitnesses. And that's what Paul told the Corinthians. You know, There's 500 that have seen him. If you don't believe my testimony... Go to Jerusalem and go talk to the people who saw him. And that was in a day when they could have gone to Jerusalem. You don't challenge somebody to go talk to witnesses if there's no witnesses to talk to. Because somebody would have gone there and said, you know, I went there and not a soul could verify that they saw Jesus. And they would have destroyed Paul's <laughs> statement. So we know that he died. We know the predictive. And this is why we can know that God is true. And once we can prove those things, the rest of it should be easy. And he's saying the people are going to be judged and then they're going to be let go. They're going to be let go to try the people. And you know, I've always wondered why anybody would choose not to follow God when they saw him face to face. But the sin nature that they're going to have and, God, and the fact that God's not going to let them do things, they're going to, and they've been wanting to rebel, there's going to be a whole bunch of people that are just saying, here's my chance to rebel. You know, I knew this God was forcing me to do it. I'm going to do what I want to do. And they're going to rebel against him. And in the last verse in this chapter, Then the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, and the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and before these ancients gloriously. And this is very interesting. They, they will both be afraid, afraid to show themselves, and yet God is ruling. Where is he ruling? Mount Zion, Jerusalem. <laughs> He's going to be in Jerusalem reigning just as he said he would. Israel will be the center of everything for a thousand years. And then into the new kingdom and new heaven and new earth where God comes down and says, here's Jerusalem, you know, just a small city. You know. the, new, the new Jerusalem is only about 1,500 1, miles square. <laughs> Could be the new kingdom, could be the millennial kingdom, because either way he's going to rule uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, might literally be the new kingdom, because it's after, if it's in, in a chronological order, it's after he's released the, 
the people, so it would be the new heaven and new earth. But even in the millennial kingdom, he rules from Jerusalem. Jesus returns, steps on Mount Olive, splits the mountain in half, and rules from Jerusalem. And then during the new heaven and new earth, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem comes down from the heaven, comes down on earth, and he rules for eternity from the new Jerusalem. So either way, uh, if it's chronological, it's the new heaven and earth. It's just out of order, which is quite common with prophecy. It could be both. But it's definitely the new, new because he's going to rule from, from the new Jerusalem as, as well as from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Uh, so either way, either way works here. And, uh, and it says he will, and he will rule before his ancients gloriously, which kind of may be putting us into the, into the new heaven and new earth with everybody having their new, new bodies and, and living. But his, his followers are alive during that time in their glor- glorified bodies. We will help Christ rule during the thousand years. So all, many of the ancients will be there as well because <laughs> they'll have had their new bodies during that period of time. So 23, either or both. <laughs> uh, either, it doesn't really matter because it, it's, it's true no matter which way you want to go. It's either the millennial kingdom or the new heaven and new earth. And quite possibly both. In, in my in my thought process. Well, that's what I was thinking. Why would the moon change calendars? Well, there won't be a moon and sun in the in the new heaven and earth. There won't. There's no need for moon and sun because God is our light. So it's most likely, yeah, you know, it's going to be confounded. Has been ashamed, discomforted, lost. So, is he talking about the millennial kingdom where their their glory is nothing compared to his glory? Or is it the new heaven and new earth where there is no sun and moon <laughs> because they're not needed? God is our light during that period of time. The sun could be ashamed because God is so much brighter. <laughs> yeah, which puts us in the millennial kingdom because you're seeing his glory, and his glory is so much, so bright that the sun says, oh, I thought I was something, but I got, <laughs> I'm nothing. Uh, so I kind of vacillate on this, on what it's actually talking about. A good chance it's the millennial kingdom. Uh, if it's the end times, there was no sun or moon, so that may, be, may put us in the millennial kingdom. All right, Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you that you've given us a picture of what you are going to do and that we will rule with you during that time. Lord, we ask that you help us to take serious reaching people so that they don't have to go through all of this process and judgment and Lord, that the world is going to pay for the sin of Adam and Eve and be destroyed along with the, those who reject you. And we just thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.